0: As I've shared before, I grew up in a Christian home, a great home. I went to a Christian school. I was in church every time the doors were open. Every time, uh, Sunday morning, multiple times, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, Wednesday night, throughout the week, we'd have people in our home, etc. And one of the truths that I heard talked about a lot. I mean, this was probably hammered on as I got older into my adolescent years. I heard this one truth hammered and driven through our skull more than any other. And that was this. Do not have sex until you're married. I don't know what it was about this church. I don't know what it was about the school I went to. But they just felt that it incredibly important that we have that drilled through every teenager's skull. Along with that, there was another thing that they had this, in my opinion, this over fascination with end times, with the coming back of Jesus, the rapture, and, and what's going to happen in the book of Revelation and all that stuff. And I remember them playing these really, really, I mean, cheesy movies. They were in the 80s. Some of you might remember them. I, I tried to recall the name of them. Uh, it was long before the Left Behind series came out, and they were terrible acting, poor cinematography, but they, for some reason, scared the pants off of me. And I remember going home now bringing these two truths. Don't have sex till you're married and God's coming back. I remember going home and I remember laying in bed as a young adolescent boy. And here is my prayer regularly. I'd lay in bed at night and say, God, please, 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 please just hold off until I get married. Just please wait, please. Now I grew up and I got into high school and I rebelled and I did, didn't follow that command. And I didn't go to marriage a virgin. But I still found it interesting how, when I got to got things kind of straightened out and got to Bible school, I'd still sit through chapel and I'd hear end times talked about. I found in my heart saying, "God, please, 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 not till I get married." Because I found sex wasn't just about a physical thing; it was about intimacy, connection, oneness, shouldering uh, with a partner, and walking together as one. And I found the I wanted that so bad. So I would say, "God, please, please, don't come back till I get married." Now, I'm married. And I'm saying, oh, dear Jesus, please come back. (laughs) (laughs) My wife's normally over here. She's now in the back. (laughs) In all seriousness, seriousness, I don't pray that. I love my wife to death. I love our marriage. And I love the place where God has us in a journey we're on. But I find it interesting how I yearned to hold off my time in heaven. To hold off my time with Jesus. I think about this in relation to, I was, when I was at LBC, there was a student from Kenya and sitting there, I didn't know him well, but there was a class We're waiting for the professor to get there. So I began to inter- interact with him. And I said, you know, tell me, I was picking his brain about his culture and what he experienced in Kenya. He came from a very poor, Kenya is already a struggling nation, but he came from a very poor section of Kenya. And he said to me, Adam, you know, what's interesting to me is as I look at the prosperous West, And here in America, and I think about Kenya, one of the differences that I see is I find it interesting in my country and in my village, he said, we speak and talk about heaven all of the time. He says it hardly a church service goes by where we don't hear reference to heaven, where we don't hear reference to Jesus coming to get us. He says, and the thing that's interesting to me is I sit here in America and since I've been here at LBC, he says, I seldom have heard a single message dedicated to the subject of heaven, let alone talked about. He says, people, as I interact with people here, Christians in America, I seldom hear heaven spoken of on a regular basis. Now he said that, then he said this, and the question that he, um, he threw up, and he literally said, this looks like a statement, but he said it as a question. He says, Adam, it makes me wonder if people in this prosperous West are finding too much satisfaction and fulfillment outside of Jesus. Now, I thought about that. and I journaled that, that I wrote that in my journal as he, I, this conversation, I, I processed this and thought about it. And I thought back to it. And as I've looked at this over the years and I've thought back and I thought about my yearnings to get married, I thought you're. Kidding me? What is it that I think I'm going to get in marriage that I'm not going to have in Jesus? And I thought about my yearnings and I thought about how often, and I've, even this week coming into this message, I tried to count how often in the past week I thought about heaven, intentionally thought about heaven. I can count it on two fingers, and the one's a questionable one. I thought, Adam, what, is it because, might it be that you're truly not finding your full fulfillment? in the person of Jesus. Now I think about this and I go further with it. And my experience is that Christians in the West, myself included, I'm in the West, I'm a Christian. We describe Christianity in terms that would make it a good option for a good life. Even if there is no resurrection. When you think about this, most Christians live and myself included as though holiness, being good, obeying the right things, Avoiding the bad things, disciplines of silence and Bible reading and prayer and going to church and helping the poor and and all this stuff is a good and beautiful way to live. And there are benefits to all this, we say. So it's a good thing to choose. Choose Christianity. Now, that's for a whole other message of the fact that that is partially true and I understand it. And science has even proven that people who are Christians and go to church and go on down the list do have all kinds of health benefits and it's been studied, but... But I find that most of us hold on to Christianity because of what it gives us here in the West. I think to really make this personal, imagine yourself sitting on a TV set, maybe for CNN or Fox News. And a reporter were to ask you a question, it would be something like this. What if your way of life turned out to be based on a falsehood? What if it turned out to be wrong? And what if there is no God? How would you respond to that? I'm afraid that most of us, myself included, might say something like, well, you know what? It was still a good and noble life. Still, the, the, the way I lived as a Christian still benefited me more than if I had not been a Christian. My life is happier. But, you know, it's interesting. I think about the Apostle Paul who is uh, we're going to look at in just a few minutes. He's, he's the one that's wrote the book of Romans where we've been the last couple of weeks. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, this is right out of the, this is from him. He says, if only for this life, we have hope in Christ. We are to be what? Pitied more than all men. So how would he answer that TV reporter? He would say, you know what? Yeah, you're right. If it's all wrong, I am to be pitied. I'm afraid most of us don't answer that. Most of us say and say, well, oh, hey, yeah, I still have a good life. It's still good. It's still, everything's working fine. But Paul says, no, if there is no resurrection is what he's talking about. In first in the context of first Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, then I am to be pitied more than anyone else. Basically we're going at this morning is this truth. Christianity is not, I emphasize not, the best way to maximize pleasure if this life is all that there is. Christianity does maximize pleasure here in this life. You've heard me talk about that many a times, but it's not the best way to maximize pleasure here and now if this is all there is here and now. Now, to kind of unfold that, turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans. The book of Romans chapter 8. We've been in a series entitled Already Not Yet. Book of Romans chapter 8. If you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible, uh, you're going to find the book of Romans about three quarters of the way through. See Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. You're going to hit the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. The series we've been in Already Not Yet. What we've been talking about is the reality that as a Christian, what it means to be a Christian is Jesus came to this earth because we looked at Romans chapter five, because we are sinners sin entered through one man. Therefore death entered through one man. We're all in trouble. We saw that in Romans chapter five, the same thing because sin entered death entered life also comes through one man. And that's Jesus. Jesus has come to give us life. Then we saw in Romans chapter six, how we, if I embrace the grace and mercy and love of God through the person of Jesus, it says, I am made new inside. I am alive for the very first time. I am alive to righteousness and I'm now dead to sin. Completely dead, it says. But we get to Romans chapter 7. So that's the already side. I am new. Already new. We get to Romans chapter 7. though, and we see that there is still sin in my body. And it still wages this war as it really comes out in Romans chapter 8, verse 10. Then we jumped into Romans chapter 8. And we talked about there's no condemnation. God loves and his love is deep. Then last week, we really kicked around the reality that we don't need to be afraid. If we are in Jesus, we are God's children, his son, his daughter. Then verse 17, I want to read it to kind of set the context where we're going in verse 18, because I think it's important. Um, But verse 17 says it this way, wrapped up with this last week. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. I mean, we we get, we're, we're his, we get everything that's his. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share, here's the thing we picked up on, if indeed, this clause, we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. So there's this choosing of suffering, this reality that's suffering. And we talked about this. And then Romans chapter 8, from the rest of this chapter, is going to ex- really, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk a lot about this issue of suffering and how, is, how does God still a good God. And, and it, it all unfolds here. But for right now, just hang with where we're going. So he talks about suffering. Then verse 18, where we're going this morning, he said, Paul says this, the writer of Romans. He says, I consider That our present suffering, the suffering that we have chosen, he says, because he says, if you choose to suffer, I consider that our present suffering, sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So he basically says, he yearns for heaven. He yearns for this glory. He hungers to be there. He says, it's going to be revealed in us. He says, I cannot wait to get there. The suffering, I mean, guys, it's, it's momentary, he says, but there is going to come a time when I am going to have this glory revealed in me, when, this, when the not yet part of me is going to be wiped away and I'm going to have a new body. Look at verse 19 now. Actually, before I do that, as I think about this question, um, yearning and how Paul yearns, you're going to see it come out stronger as we move on here. So think about this yearning. I had to ask the question this week, why don't I yearn? As I already shared in my intro, I don't yearn. I realize that. I recognize that. Why don't I yearn more? Why don't I really hunger and pine away to be in heaven? Why don't I do that? Now, as I thought about this and I really looked in the mirror and really allowed myself to say, okay, Adam, what's deep inside there? And I'm afraid that I don't yearn enough for two primary reasons. The first one is this. I already kind of talked about this. I see Christianity too often as a means to maximize my pleasure. To illustrate this, I think about the way I teach the Bible to my kids. How many times I tell them, you know what? Bad company corrupts good morals. If you choose to live this way, your life will go better for you. You know what? If you confess your sins and tell the truth, Luke or Zach or Eden... You're going to feel better. I'm talking about doing the right thing and how it's going to maximize their pleasure here and now. I go on to talk about if you make these wise choices, if you work hard, if you discipline yourself, if you, and, and I talk about this in a way that makes it sound like it's here and now. And it's not wrong, but is it the real heart of the gospel of Jesus? Is it the real heart of the Bible? Is it the real heart of Christianity? Isn't the real heart of Christianity? Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let it outflow to a love of your neighbors. So I find too often I get caught in this reality that Christianity is a means to maximize my pleasure here now. Now, it does do that. And again, that's for a whole other message, but it's not the heart of Christianity. The second thing is this. Too much of my life and spiritual journey is about my performance for God and not God's performance for me. I think here's how this one unfolds. It kind of goes like this. When I, as a Christian, truly connect and understand and get my head around the grace and love of God. When I truly understand that Christianity is not about making bad people good, but making dead people alive. When I really get that I came from death to life, not bad to good. I can't do that on my own. And when I really grasp how far I was from him without Jesus and I understand how much I have been forgiven and how it's because of his work for me, not my work for him. When I really get my head around that, I love God. Don't you? Some of you relate to that. You say, you know what? It makes me hunger for him more. I appreciate him. I can't wait to be with him. I'm so grateful and thankful. and I live from this place of gratitude and love and appreciation and a desire to live. What's right. Not in this gutted out deep down inside work hard kind of way. See, I also find with this one too, is deep down inside. If I am dependent on my performance, let's be honest already this morning. I ran around this building worried and anxious. And I know fully because of the two services and all that's going on. And I know fully that a Philippians tells me do not be what anxious. So if I am really dependent on me and my work and my performance, I know, and I could go on the list. If you want to hear a whole list of little sins, I've had a whole pile this morning already. And I know fully that deep down inside of me, I still have this sin in my body that I rest when I fight with. And if it's left to my performance, I'm in big trouble. And when it's left to me, I don't want to see God. Because I've still got stuff i got to deal with. But when it's up to him and what he has done for me, I can't wait to see him. Because it's going to get rid of all this. And I'm going to say, praise Jesus, it's gone and this battle is over. And I can just live in your presence and hunger to be with you. So I find too often, I find so often. One is I think Christianity is all about the here and the now. And the second thing, I think I depend far too much on my performance for God to make me okay. Not Jesus' performance for me. Now, as we continue to unpack, um, as we continue to unpack this, look at verse nineteen. It says, "This the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed." It says, in other words, all the world, the birds, the fish, the trees, the mountains, the rocks. This world that we live in is crying out. And it's, we're going to see later, there's this deep guttural groaning saying, we cannot wait. Your dog and your cat cannot wait for you to get to heaven. Because when you're get to heaven and everyone gets to heaven and God, Jesus comes back and he puts an end to this whole thing and starts things all fresh and new with a new heaven and a new earth. Sin is gone. And this creation knows that. Continue reading, look at what it says in verse 20. For creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pain of childbirth right up to this present time. This morning as I uh, woke up and I grab my smartphone and I kind of this routine where I look at the news and see what I missed throughout the night. And it's, I love this. I love those things now and you can kind of have it right there in your hand. I watched uh, some footage from the tornadoes that hit central America, uh, the United States this week. One third of our nation was ravaged with horrible tornadoes. I watch a story of a mom holding her four year old son, And having that son ripped from her arms to die, and she still lives because of a tornado. And I look at the devastation, destruction, trees bent and slaughtered and cracked and broken. Land just leveled. And I thought about this verse. I thought, you know, it's interesting. This world is screaming out with the pain to see, cannot wait for us to see that be done. Tsunamis, tornadoes earthquakes, hurricanes, death, destruction, decay, watching one animal rip into another animal, watching your dog or cat or loved pet die. This world knows that it's broken and it cannot wait to get back to how it was designed to function. Now look with me at verse 23. This incredible thought comes out in verse 23. I'll be honest with you, it's going to look like it contradicts with something I said last week, but let's, let's explore this. Verse 23. Not only so, so not only does the world eagerly wait for that, but look what he says. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our what? Those of you are the NIV version. What's it say there? We are waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know what's interesting? If you look back at verse 15... And if you listen to me last week, look at verse 15 says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of what? Of sonship. The word is adoption. It's the exact same word that Paul uses in verse 23, the exact same word. So hear what he's saying? Last week, he says, you're adopted. If you're in Jesus, you're adopted. You are adopted. A son or a daughter of God. You can call him daddy. You are fully adopted. Galatians chapter 4 repeats the thought. You're adopted. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. You're adopted. You get to verse 23 then. It says, now wait a minute. Verse 15 was in past tense. Verse 23 says, you're waiting for your adoption yet to come. I think the beauty of this is the already not yet is coming out clearly in Paul's mind here. He understands both these realities in a way that he just talks about them simultaneously. But to help it make sense for us, here's here's how I would say it. Here's how it kind of works. This is a church that truly gets adoption. This church, we we have 40, almost 50 people in this church that have been adopted. This church gets it. They understand the value of adoption, the beauty of adoption, the need for adoption. The fact that all Christians are called to be a part of working with the fatherless at some capacity, whether it's praying, giving money, actually bringing them into your home. In some way, we're responsible to be a part of that. This church gets that. I think oftentimes we understand as you look at families who are adopting and we walk alongside with them, we pray with them, we care for them, we see it through their eyes. But I want us this morning to try and think of it through the child's eye who's being adopted. I think of a story back uh, two years ago, I attended the uh, Mid-Atlantic Orphan Summit, took place over in Hershey. And I sat there and it's, it's a whole emphasis on helping the church. Christians get around this idea of adoption and to work with the fatherless. I was there. They had this lady named Eileen Mastis come and speak. And she was an incredible lady. She was in her late fifties, almost 60 years old. She had moved from Los Angeles. Her husband was a police officer there in Los Angeles. And had moved to North Carolina. They had financial ruin that had hit them. They were in debt. I think something like $60,000 that they're trying to dig themselves out of. They come to North Carolina to try and settle down and get things moving. But their children who are growing up began to say to them, I think we need to adopt. So they take a trip to Ethiopia. Here here they are. I mean, they're looking at retirement soon. They take a trip to Ethiopia and their hearts are broken as they walk into an orphanage there. Ethiopia, one of the poorest nations in our world. And they see these children and their hearts break. And they've been praying about this. So they say, let's bring three of them home with us. They adopt three kids and bring them home. There was one boy there named Solomon who was 15 years old when they met him. Solomon was, um, been in the orphan as long as he can remember. He was there since birth, never knew a mom or a dad. Eileen wanted to bring him home so bad, but they had the three and they good sense kicked in and said, we can't bring a fourth at this point. So they kept in contact with Solomon began to pray with them and, and uh, correspond via email and, and back and forth. He finishes up his schooling uh, and wants to get into what we would call high school, but in Ethiopia to get into high school, it's not like here, which is guaranteed to everyone. You've got to pass a test. Solomon didn't pass the test. Now, I looked and look at this and realized that at this point, children in Ethiopia who do not make it to further education are stuck in life in a way that they will know poverty and suffering from there on out. So there's the only way to get a child in at that point was to pay for it themselves if, if you happen to have the money to do it. So they decided to, to say, you know what, we're going to bring this kid into our family. We're going to adopt him and get him, pay for him to get this schooling. So, it's what they did. They began filling the paperwork out to adopt Solomon. They got him into school. A few years later, he graduated the valedictorian of his class, and they decided, we want to bring him over here to America and get him to college. So, they go through the process to fully adopt Solomon into their family. He's now their child. The the paperwork was completed. The judge and all the, the proceedings, the lawyers, and everyone finalizes it, and it's now his child. But guess where? He's still living. Ethiopia. They're waiting for him to come home. I think when you talk to families who've adopted, they always have this point though. Some it's very small window and some it's a larger window. They always have a point where the paperwork's completed and now they just have to go pick the child up. But legally the child is theirs. They've got to go through official proceeding. And here Solomon was, and I loved watching it. The video they shared and, and, I YouTube and found it again this week, but it didn't quite work to get it onto our screen this morning. I watched watching Solomon then come home, come through the gates at the airport and hug his now mom and dad. I watched the tears, the joy, the balloons, the confetti spraying, the excitement, the energy. And I think about it. And I think about what Paul is talking about here. And I think in a lot of ways, what he's saying is in verse 23, you're adopted. The paperwork is complete. Verse 15, the paperwork is complete. You are God's children. You can call him daddy. You're all his if you are in Jesus. All we do now is wait to go home. We're living here in this earth waiting to go home. I think about some of the verses that kind of support this. This first one is Hebrews chapter 11. This verse is amazing. It says it this way. All these people were still living by faith when they died. Referring to guys like Abraham and people that we look at in our Old Testament and say these were incredible men of faith. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. When Abraham died, he did not see and understand the the promise Where God said, you're going to be the father of many nations. Look to the stars and see all those stars. You're going to have more descendants than you do stars. He died. That wasn't true. But he still held on. He says, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were, what's it say? I love this. Aliens and strangers. They're still living in the orphanage. We aren't home yet. I think about the next verse says it this way. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, talks about those promises. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Matter of fact, many in chapter 11 of Hebrews never saw the promises come true. He's not slow as some understand slowness, but what is he doing? He's patient with you, not wanting what? What's he want? He wants to adopt you. Every single human being on this planet that is living and breathing right now today, as we sit here in this room is created in the image of God has been put together to relate to him, to know him and for him to know. It's a beautiful thing, but sin entered this world and it's broken. Jesus came and now we've, we've got to make a choice. We've got to say, yeah, I want that relationship restored. And God says, I am going to hang on and wait until people come to repentance and I can bring them into my family. I'm not slow. He says, I'm not slow. My promises are going to come true. Well, watch, they're going to happen. But I want my children coming home. Look at the next verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. I love this verse. He says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. I mean, I love this. See the imagery of father and judge in one verse. I love it. <laughs> he's your father, but he's also your judge. He judges each man's work impartially. Live your lives as strangers here. Don't get comfortable. You're in an orphanage. You're not home yet. Live in reverent fear. That, that word there doesn't mean shake and quiver and be afraid. It means respect and reverence. Hence the reverent fear in front of it. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. I think about this. I, I went yesterday, took my kids. Uh, some of you, uh, we got some gift certificates for Christmas to... Uh, It's a certain movie theater. The Lorax came out this week, so we went to see that movie yesterday. Great movie. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Our kids loved it. But those of you who don't know the story, it's about a story. It's it's far-fetched and incredibly make-believe, but it's about the keeper of the forest. Obviously, (laughs) uh, they find it to be this little guy named the Lorax, this little fuzzy creature if you've seen the commercials. What happens is there's a young man who comes to this area who wants to make his fortune. He wants to prove to his family that he is something. His family throughout the movie treats him like a loser, an outsider, like he'll never amount to anything. So he leaves his family and he comes to this beautiful forest and he realizes that the the treetops, these these crazy-looking Dr. Seuss trees that only he can imagine, they can be used and processed. So he sets out and he starts hacking down all the trees and he builds this huge empire and he builds this gigantic factory. And he kills all the trees in the entire forest. Now the Lorax, there's this incredible scene where he comes to him and he basically says, you are bad. The Lorax says to him. And I love it. This cool song sings where, where this young man dances around and, and his Pixar did a great job with this song. I found my foot tapping, but he sings, he's basically singing. Am I really that bad? Am I really that bad? And he's telling the whole story of how he has his money. And I love it. He has his silver and his gold and he has his image and he's making something of himself. And am I really that bad? And it gets all said and done. And the song finishes and the Lorax comes to him. He has this incredible, powerful statement. He looks at him in the eyes and he says this, but have you filled the empty place in your soul? I loved it. What a great illustration for my kids to take in. Peter says, life is not about silver and gold. And the Lorax came out and he said, it's empty, the empty place that we try to fill. It's not about that. But he was on to say, but it's about the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake, Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Strangers here on this earth, not chasing money, silver and gold, but Jesus Christ. I think of the next verse I love tremendously is uh, Philippians. Philippians chapter three. It says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Most of us would say, I'm a U.S. citizen. I was born, bred, and raised right here in Pennsylvania. I'm a U.S. citizen. But Paul comes along and says, no, you're a citizen in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like what? Very similar to Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, I eagerly await the transformation of this broken body that sin is still part of. Already, I'm made new inside. I've got a new spirit, but I've still got the broken body, not yet. And I cannot wait for the day that it comes to an end. The final verse is Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. And this one I put up here is a bit of a balance to just kind of I find that sometimes people become so people can take what I'm saying and run to the place where they're so er heavenly minded. They're no earthly good. Oh, dear God, please come back, bring heaven back. And all they think about is heaven, 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 take me home, take me home, take me home. And they miss all the people around them and all that God wants to do in their lives. So that's why I love this verse to balance it out and say, it's not just about sitting around twiddling my thumbs and saying, oh, dear Jesus, come back. It's for me to live is Christ. If I have to live, I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to live of worth and value of having my total identity in the person of Jesus Christ, having my total and complete satisfaction met in the person of Jesus Christ. And guess what? That's a real win, and if I die, I gain too. Because if I die, I come face to face perfectly with Jesus in a way that I don't while I'm here living on this Earth. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Powerful, powerful verse. So I think about Paul, and I think about how he says in verse 17, and we lead into our text for today, where he says, if we choose this suffering, Paul chooses suffering. I find that there's a joy in affliction. What it really does, if you you look back at Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, maybe this week, you'll see that this whole process of suffering produces perseverance. Ultimately, through suffering, if we persevere, we find hope. Chris is actually going to come in two weeks, and he's going to talk about that in Romans 8 here, talks about hope, and we're going to learn about hope and talk about it. But suffering ultimately produces hope. Paul chose, the, the writer here, chose a life that would be pitied without the hope and joy beyond the grave. Really, if you look at it, what he really does is he lived with his all and all totally wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Paul gets this. That's why he understands. I think many Christians, if you think about this next statement, he says, you know, how many Christians do you know, yourself included, could say this. Sorry, I bumped one ahead there. Let me back it up one. Can really say this. The lifestyle I have chosen as a Christian, how many of us can really say this? The lifestyle I have chosen as a Christian would be utterly foolish and pitiable if there is no resurrection. And really be honest with yourself. I mean, I looked at my life this week. I have a nice house. I've got two cars. I looked at the suffering and the things that I, I looked at the, the suffering that I endure. It's minimal. I complain about a sore throat. I complain about my my esophageal, whatever the doctors label that. I complain about this and that. But I look at my life. I've got four great kids. We have our health. We can pay our bills. I look at my life compared to every other American, and it's not that different. And I think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there is no resurrection, my life should be pitiable. Compared to everyone else's. And I look at this and I think the lifestyle I have chosen as a Christian, is it utterly foolish and pitiable if there is no resurrection? I think far too often I am living for things here and now that every other American is living for status, reputation, to be someone, to be something, to have a nice house, to have a nice car for what end? And I look at it and I say, (laughs) Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if it's not true, I'm to be pitied. So look at it, Christianity, Christianity is a slot I started with, is not the best way to maximize pleasure. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Paul actually says there in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, if it's not true, I'm to be pitied more than anyone else. He says, if it's not true, go eat, drink and be merry is basically what he says. Go have fun. Go live it up because what's it matter at the end of the day? Because tomorrow you die. It's a great statement right out of 1 Corinthians 15. As I think about this, and I think as I process this this week, and I thought, Adam, you do not hunger for heaven and yearn for it and eagerly anticipate it the way that you should. I think probably if most of us are honest, we're going to find most of us in this place, I think, to some degree. So I want to leave us with this thought. God is calling us home. Every one of us, if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ and he is in you, if you can say that for certainty, you are living right now in an orphanage. You've been adopted. The papers have been filled out. The judge has ruled. The lawyers have done their work. You are sealed. It's a done deal. You are his child. But you simply live in the orphanage called Terry Hill, or Bowmansville, or New Holland, or Gap, or Lancaster, or Ephrata, or wherever it is that you may live. You're living there in the orphanage, waiting to be called home, waiting to come to that place where you see the one that you've put your hope and your trust in, that you've put and staked your identity in. As I close, I just want to pray for myself and us to say, God, you know what? Forgive me for doubting you. Forgive me to looking to gold and stuff and my job and and making a difference to satisfy me, to give me life, to empty, to fill that empty place in me. And God, help me. Help me to find my all in all in Jesus Christ and his work for me and eagerly look forward to coming home and leaving this orphanage. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Because I started talking this morning, just thinking of my own life and the illustration of how I yearned—I wanted so badly for you not to come—because I wanted to be married. God, I think about our Christian Western Christ existence here in the church, and I'd say, boy, how often do we talk about heaven? The fact that we're strangers here in this earth. God, it's—I confess to you—it's not often. I confess to you that I don't hunger and yearn in the ways that I should. Forgive me for that. Help me as a pastor of this church not to to preach and not do things that I expect others to do, but God, help me to live out in a way that I find my complete and total satisfaction in you. And when I do that, boy, how it creates this hunger to see you and to be with you. God, I pray that all of us would experience that at some level. God, I pray that you would challenge us to to walk this week in a way that examines our heart and our life and says, you know what? What am I living for? What am I chasing after? What do I want out of this life? Would my life really be pitiable if the resurrection were not true? Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm afraid, God, far too often that the answer is no, it wouldn't for me. So God, keep ever burned in my mind that I am a child of yours. The paperwork is complete. It's a done deal. I don't need to be afraid. I am your child and I can call you daddy. And God, how I look forward to leaving this orphanage called Earth, called Terry Hill, and coming home to you. I can only imagine, God, what that day will be like when we walk the streets of gold and walk through those pearly gates. But God, more than the golden streets and the pearly gates, the promise of heaven is about you being face to face with a God who loves us. And we can stand there on the merit of Jesus Christ alone. How I look forward to that day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.